Welcome to I Am Nala podcast, brought to you by Nala Feminist Collective or Nala Femme, where we strive towards the liberation of African women and girls. We are a group of feminist leaders in politics and activism with a mission to foster, embolden, and mobilize women and girls from Africa and the diaspora for transformative change. I am your host, Aya Shebi, founder of Nala Femme. And on this second season of I Am Nala podcast, we raise awareness during the 16 days of activism. We talk about Africa Young Women Beijing Plus 25 Manifesto and its 10 demands. Welcome to another episode of I Am Nala podcast. My guest today is uh, Yasmin Abdul Majid, a Sudanese Australian writer. Hi, hi. An engineer and activist uh, based everywhere in the world. I don't know. I mean, you said you're in London <laughs> right now, but she's everywhere. Um, but I like how also she's described as an agitator. We talk, we're going to talk about that. And of course, she's a council member of Nala Femme since uh, we started this journey. And we're so proud of her work and her important role in the collective. So, Yasmin, how are you? Alhamdulillah, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And yes, I, I like to say that I am from the diaspora. I spend a lot of time in lots of different places, but that is the the thread that runs through through it all. Okay, so you started, that was my first question. How would you describe yourself in three words? Oh, three words. Um, yeah, probably somebody who is, let's say, let's go with an agitator, um, somebody who's very curious um, and somebody who, this is not one word, but is always learning Maybe mm, a that. learner mm -hmm. mm. amazing so let's let's first start uh with the with the manifesto because we're we're celebrating the 16 days of activism and we want to highlight the work you do because it's um it's unconventional so you are championing uh, uh manifesto demand seven on education because you're actually educating the world through your published books, through your plays, I, I saw recently, through your writings, your voice mainly. And, and why education is extremely important, of course, not mm -hmm. the formal, you know, uh, the education way of learning, but broadly learning. And how mm. did it help you to, to find your voice? Yeah, thank you for the question. I think for me, when we when we use the word education, we often think of formal schooling, you know, whether it's primary, secondary, university, university and tertiary education and so on. But for me, education is about that idea of constantly learning. And it is about being able to constantly have more tools to understand the world around us, to understand the history of where we've come from, um, to understand how other people have, you know, organized and done things. And also, you know, think about where we kind of want to go collectively in the future. And it's very difficult, you know, as human beings, we come into this world not knowing very much at all. And it, we have to learn in order to be able to kind of move forward and create community and so on. And, and we are learning at every step, you know, from when uh, we're with our parents, with our family from day one, all the way, you know, throughout our life. And so through the work that I do, whether it is publishing books for, you know, adults, essays that are really trying to interrogate contemporary cultural issues, whether it's, you know, books for younger people where I've got characters that are very curious and in lots of different contexts, or whether it's, you know, doing TikToks, 
where I talk about, you know, different social issues, all the way to conferences and keynotes around the world, alhamdulillah. I guess I'm always trying to increase the awareness and, and sort of raise the consciousness of the people that I'm speaking to and also help them develop their own critical thinking tools so that they can then go on and learn themselves. This is a, a great transition to my other question, which is about critical thinking and the formal you know, education system. Uh, you write a lot about politics and, and you critique unapologetically a lot of the politics of the West. Um, and I, I mean, I did my master at SOAS, the heart of, of the capitalist London. And I know firsthand how Eurocentric uh, our education, their education system is, but also on the continent, our education system is Eurocentric mm. because we're a product mm. of the legacy of colonialism. So how do how how can we develop mm. a, a critical thinking for kids and for generations to come to be uh, pan-Africanist and not to be brainwashed with with mental slavery and with this uh, system both in 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 mm. the West and on the continent that we're, we're products of. I think this is such an important challenge, right? Because, you know, we can talk about the formal, the formal decolonization of the 50s and 60s, but, you know, the next sort of challenge in the decolonial movement, um, I, I would argue, is that of, you know, the, the very structures that we live in and the very, you know, our own imagination, right? The sort of decolonizing of the mind that people speak about um, and, and has been written about. And I think part of that is, the the work of giving legitimacy and credibility to all of the ways of learning and educating and thinking that might not be necessarily in the traditional libraries that you know that we find in European contexts that we're used to might not even be written down but understanding that what is um, important isn't necessarily only what's been written down the sort of oral stories the ways of thinking that are a bit different so, so there's you know step one of trying to sort of go back and find what has been lost. And also I think a, the challenge of trying to create again and imagine again, um, maybe we're using the values that we know exist um, in various communities on the continent, uh, sort of breathing or rebreathing life back into them. And, and I'm, I really wanna be cautious here because I don't want to say that people haven't been engaging in non-Eurocentric um, or African-centric ways of thinking or education and so on. But it is, it's less about saying that doesn't exist and more about saying, how do we bring that back to the center? How do we you know, make, embed that as part of our formal education process and so on? For me personally, the way that I've tried to do this is to you know, change who I, what authors I read, you know, am I reading, you know, like, I don't know, the, the Europeans, like the Charles Dickens, or am I trying to read, you know, um, Abdurazak Gurna, or like Chinua Achebe, or, you know, um, Tayyip Saleh, the Sudanese writer, for example, if we're looking at literature, if we're thinking about plays, are we thinking about Shakespeare, or are we thinking about, you know, stories that we might not even consider theatrical, but stories from the Quran, for example, or stories that we've grown up with, the, the, you know, I mean, very simple, but like even something like Juha, who, you know, we sort of laugh at and think of as a kid's thing. It's a very, you know, there's the fables and the stories in that are very powerful. So, so trying not to think of them as like things that we just leave at home, but bringing them and trying to sort of recenter them, I think can be the beginning of, of really changing how we think about education. Mm. 
You know, what you said really reminds me also of our context in the development sector where we always tell the donors that what we write on the report is not what usually or mostly reflect what happened on the ground mm. and, and what happened on the ground might not end up in the report. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's always about that fluidity, I guess, about your ways of learning. So I want to, because you mentioned also TikTok and you do this one minute with yes. And uh, and I, I want to know which topic right now, political topic that is pissing mm. you off. Oh my God, what what isn't pissing me off, Yaya? Right now, everything is very upsetting. I guess there's something that, this is, you know, something that I think is newer for me in my thinking about politics, but it's something that I, that I want to learn more about um, and is becoming increasingly relevant is, you know, we're talking only a few days after COP27 finished in Egypt and the conversation around climate change and the conversation about loss and damage and the impact that it's having on people on the continent and the impact that, you know, massive climate change, you know, East Africa, you're looking at Ethiopia and Somalia and so many of these, my own Sudan suffering from drought and suffering from the effects of the war in Ukraine and and thinking like how are we again as people or how are folks on the continent again suffering not due to anything that they have done you know and and how can we kind of shift that conversation how do we move responsibility and accountability you know this isn't necessarily something that I have I mean nobody I certainly don't have the answers to and I'm joining a conversation that's been how been you know been around for decades but this is something that I think is only going to become more and more and more important and how we you know engage with and try to hold you know former colonial nations and these industrialized nations to account um is something I've been spending a lot of time thinking about I'm also pissed off that but listen I mean, something <laughs> happened. Something happened recently, right? Uh, in Tunisia, the Francophonie uh, conference uh, took place in in Jerba, in the south of Tunisia. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure I'm not sure if you you saw it on the news, um, where Macron said in his opening remarks that French is the Pan African language. Oh, excuse me. Oh my God, the French really love to act like they're everything, huh? They really <laughs> like to. Wow. So so wow. I want to see something after this, you know, on your yes. Instagram. Yeah. I've got you. I've got you. Listen. Oh my I really I, you know, as you know, I lived in Paris for a year and I really getting to understand the French mentality and especially their relationship still with the continent is like I thought the I thought the Anglophones were bad, but really the French take it to another level. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean really if you ask me what pisses you off, it's always this uh this continuous um resistance of you know mm. the, the the French colonization and their legacy mm. and and how they you know articulate themselves around everything African mm. you know it, it just manifests every time in different ways and every time mm. we say we're opening a new chapter and we're, we're you know and they're trying you know then something happens like this uh same way when he was uh just newly elected and he made a tour in Africa and there was a lot of controversy around the things he said so I think it's yeah it's in the conversational decolonization that you're raising that mm. it's um it's it's the statements it's the discourse it's the practice it's the the everyday relationship it's it's just a lot to unpack so i want to move to um talk more about um, let's say um feminism or the the female uh, and how are we as female operating in in the system mm. 
Um, and I think it's fascinating for me when you talk a lot about unconscious bias. I think you, you're one of the people who really um, um, kind of continuously, you know, raise raise this uh, because we always talk about bias, but not the unconscious of it. So can you tell us more about your vision uh, around a word free from from mm. bias, especially as a as women, as as female uh, mm. leaders in our own rights who are operating in, in today's world? Mm. Thank you for the question. Yeah, as this question of sort of um, women's rights and gender justice, which is a phrase that I like to use. Um, you know, the older I get, the more I'm like how we are having these same battles, just maybe in slightly different forms, but it is consistently this battle of what does it look like for you know the genders to be equal and for for you know if women are doing particular roles are they seen as less legitimate or having less credibility whatever that role might be or if women are in particular positions how are they actually being completely supported in the same way that they would if they were a different gender and so on I mean for me a world without gender injustice would be a world where every woman you know, can live freely and safely and make her own choices. Um, and, you know, they might be choices that we deem more quote unquote traditional. They might be choices that we haven't even imagined before. Um, but also, I guess that we live in societies where your gender does not dictate the society's expectations of you and does not dictate the way the, the world engages with you. Um, I'm not necessarily a believer in just individual justice I'm interested in collective justice so I'm interested in us also imagining what you know what would women who had equal power and justice in this world what choices would they make about how they organize the society I would love to see that I don't know the answers to that but I think that's quite exciting as well um so yeah I think that's I mean that's what we're all working towards inshallah right yeah, I mean, probably pre-colonial Africa could have given us a lot of answers, uh, you know, right. to that. Because yeah. Yeah, I remember, yeah, yeah. I remember recently I was in in uh, in Germany on this panel, and uh, the moderator asked, uh, "What do you think? Uh, do you think if the word was ruled by women, would be better, right?" And I'm mm. like, "But the word was matriarchal, and it was ruled by yeah. women in pre-colonial Africa, and they were doing great." <laughs> yeah. So I would love to live in a kingdom of women, to be honest. <laughs> Truly. And I mean, and, you know, we have so many studies that show us that in societies where women are, have power and are empowered, you know, like war and conflict is massively decreased, you know, the, the sort of the care for people in the societies, of course, women are not perfect. But, you know, when you have structures defined by sort of the, the life givers, I think it can be very different, revolutionary. Absolutely. So tell us about your new book, because I guess you are still touring, right? And I oh, don't yes. have a yeah. copy and I'm not happy. Oh, my about God. That. Okay, I need to. Yeah, no, I mean, I clearly need to post you a copy. That's going to happen. It's on the podcast now, everyone. You can hold me to Accountability. account. <laughs> <laughs> so it's called Talking About a Revolution, um, fittingly, and it's a collection of essays sort of on on revolution and evolution and social justice and what I call sort of contemporary political issues. Um, and half the essays are things that I've written over my 20s and then half of them are new essays that I wrote when I was 30. So I, I also can like talk about it as a coda to my 20s. You know, this is the decade of my thinking. And what I want, I wanted to do kind of two things. What One was I wanted to sort of bring a, my body of work from my 20s together so people could kind of almost see how my politics have grown and changed over time and see me grappling with some of those 
you know, tricky political, like going from a more individualistic or trying to sort of, you know, growing up in the West, that sort of model migrant mentality and grappling with what it was to be the model migrant, how to break free from that and so on, all the way to the structural conversations around, you know, revolution in Sudan to what does this idea of prison abolition look like and, and how does it fit with my Islamic ideals and so on and so on. Um, and so I guess the second objective of it was to open up a bunch of conversations for people. Like I want each of these essays to be a talking point for, for people and hopefully, inshallah, you know, wherever you are on your political journey, there's something in this collection that speaks to you. Well, we need a whole other podcast for the book once I read it yes. and I have my copy. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, but, but, perfect. but already what you said really like makes me a lot curious uh, because I know you you also um, wrote, I think, two books about Leila, which which is really yeah. fascinating. So I've got um, You Must Be Leila is the first and Listen Leila is the second. So You Must Be Leila is a story about a Sudanese-born girl who's 13 years old. She's starting at a brand new high school, um, a fancy private high school in Australia. And she gets, you know, one of the kids at school is a bit racist and she gets into a fight with him and then she ends up being suspended. And her goal, it, she has to then sort of win a robotics competition, right, in order to prove that she should stay at the school. So for Leila in the first book, it's all about her kind of discovering that she needs to listen to the people around her and she goes on a bit of a journey around that but the second book um, is mostly in Africa mostly in Sudan so Leila, Leila's grandmother gets sick and they travel back to Sudan um, to be with the grandma and she gets caught up in the revolution um, and so she's 14 years old her cousins are going out to fight or to you know to protest and and what I wanted to explore was what is it like for a kid from the diaspora to come and come into a revolution you know from the outside, right? And even though she might learn to care about all these sorts of things, how does she, you know, and she has to go on this journey of being like, well, what is the right way for me to be involved? And she, you know, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but she she sort of thinks a little bit, thinks that she can come in with some solutions before she stops and listens um, to the people who are living in, in the country. And so, you know, I think it's a pretty, it's a some folks might think it's a bit advanced, but I think for a 14-year-old kid from the diaspora, it makes a lot of, you know, it's the perfect kind of thing to be talking about because you think, oh, I really want to be involved. But the question is, what is the best way for you to, to be involved in the revolution? It's, it's interesting because you're writing fiction and nonfiction at the same time because it also speaks to who you are, right? Living in Australia and being Sudanese and so on. And I, I, I'm curious to know, I don't know if it's in, in Leida's story or in your story, uh, around the myths or the stereotypes you get as a Muslim mm -hmm. woman when you are in Australia and then when you go back to Sudan. Yeah, I mean, so I haven't lived in Australia for a few years now, but I would say, you know, these sort The, the same sort of myths and stereotypes exist across the Anglophone West, which is, you know, people have a lot of presumptions and assumptions about what people from Sudan are like, what Muslim women are like, what people who wear the hijab are like, etc. And I think a lot of my early years in organizing and in activism, I spent a lot of time trying to, you know, challenge the stereotypes break people's stereotypes you know I would constantly talk about how I was into all of I was into engineering and I made race cars and I and I broke all these people's stereotypes and I think and, and sometimes I still do talk about that especially when I'm doing like introductory conversations and speeches to um to you know 
communities that are that are new to the to the conversation around um, bias and racism and so on. But I think personally, I put less energy now into trying to be like your stereotype or your bias is this, and I'm going to show you that I'm not that. And I try to write and think about what I am interested in and then present that on its own terms and actually also talk to the people that are from my communities rather than just talking to the dominant culture of the society that I'm in because I think doing you know responding directly to the dominant culture is useful but if we're really interested in creating something transformative then I also want to empower um, the people, you know, from the from the historically marginalized societies that that I'm a part of in the diaspora to to make things on our own terms and to tell stories on our own terms. So yeah, that's been I think a little bit of a shift over the last few years for me, um, because I'm like part of me is like, well, the stereotype is your problem; it's not actually mine, and I'm not going to live, you know, with I'm not going to live a life limited by constantly trying to challenge it's you know that Toni Morrison quote like the the function of racism is to distract you so the function of constantly trying to resist biases and and so on I found a little bit of a distraction and that's what I'm trying to do we'll see we'll see inshallah I mean it it reminds me of how I also shifted uh my way of dealing with uh, men right so like mm-hmm. in, in, you know in the fight for gender justice there's a lot of work around oh educate the boys you know and mm. make more with male leaders feminists and, and so on and then at some point I realized I'm not gonna invest my energy in that it's not my job to educate the boys while I have a lot to do to empower the women <laughs> right so exactly it's also, it's also taking a lot of your time and now there are programs dedicated mm-hmm. to that and take a lot of resources instead of like making women financially free and so on so it, it's it's really I think when you go through it then you, you change your approach and you see where your energy is at uh, I, 100%. Think I think that's a great also tip uh, to to girls out there and and I want to also ask you those aspiring you know right women who who look like you who have the same faith and who really aspire to be independent to be to have a powerful voice to find their voice and to write maybe be writers especially um what what would you tell them? I mean, what where can they start? What should they do and do not? Mm. I think, so I started writing online. You know, I was one of the many people. I think you you yeah. did as well, didn't you? Uh, yeah. We had a blog, you know, and we were writing about the world around us. And we were passionate and angry and full of, you know, revolutionary fervor um, about what was going on in the place that we were living. And so that's what I did. I started online and I think, that kind of gave me the space to experiment. So my first plate, my first sort of hint or tip would be find a place, whether it's online or off, where you can just start writing without thinking about the audience, without thinking about whether it's good or bad, because half the battle is literally just sitting down and starting. So many people have a book inside them, but they've just never, they've never made the time. So if you just, you know, wake up in the morning, I said to a friend the other day who told me that she wanted to start writing. I was like, wake up in the morning and just for 10 minutes, just free write, just write whatever's in your mind, you know, and if you do that every day for a week, if you do that every day for a month, all of a sudden, you've got maybe a few hundred pages, right, of thoughts and so on. And then you can start thinking, well, what is the story that I want to share with the world? How can I share that with the world? And if you put that out there, you then might also start to understand what you care about, and what you want to, you know, write more about. And the, the sort of 
the second or third tip I will give is there are so many formal opportunities out there. There are courses, there are free courses, you know, ones you can pay for. There are residencies that you can apply to. Honestly, so many of the opportunities that I have been very fortunate to that have changed my writing life. It's because I've scoured the internet and I've applied for everything. And I might get one out of every 10 or 20 that I apply for, but if you just put yourself out there, that's how things will change, inshallah. I remember when uh, me and you and Peters were talking about writing my book and you were like, just record yourself or let's jump on a call and just tell me the story yeah. and then you have the recording, you know? So it, it's really about taking that one step at a time, one day at a time and not feeling overwhelmed. Oh, I'm going to write now a book or like, also, I think the, uh, the judgment, right? Like again, the mm. bias, the judgment in your head that what would people say about my writing? So then you mm. start self-censoring, self-sabotaging yourself. Totally. Yeah. By writing. One of the best things that somebody said to me once was like, write as if no one will ever read this. Mm. Like write as if no one will ever read this because it's actually quite hard to be honest on the page, right? But the best writing is the most honest. And listen, even if you're, I've published four books now, alhamdulillah, my fifth one is coming out next year. I'm still worried about whether my writing is good enough or not. I'm still worried about, you know, whether, you know, like I'm still judging myself in my own mind. That doesn't go away. You just have to learn how to manage it and become friends with it or at least tolerate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm sure a lot of young women now are like, writing a book every year or every two years I mean this is so productive right but but like how do you live as a writer it's not easy right like people see just when you publish the book and you're touring with it and they don't know all of the challenges you face all of the hard work all of the struggle with yourself to to even tell those different <laughs> stories yeah so tell us yeah. the, the challenge part <laughs> oh my god it is you know I read something somewhere where it's like writing is not hard like you know building a house but it's hard like physics you know there is like there is it is an incredible you're constantly battling yourself you know it's a real it's a real mental workout it, you're also battling like every distraction because you have to protect your time and there is so much to distract you right like to be able to say to people I'm sorry I'm not going to talk to anyone for a week because I, I need to sit down and write it's very difficult in this world you know everyone wants to call you all the time everyone wants to find out what you're doing blah, blah. so I yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of difficult things in my life, but sort of living and having a career as a writer, this is why, you know, for one or two or three months a year, I will be offline and I will, you know, not answer my emails and not answer my Instagram DMs and probably annoy quite a lot of people, but it's because I have to work so hard to protect that time. And then even once I've created that time for myself, I'm like, oh my God, I have to sit here and I have to write. What am I going to say? It's probably going to be trash. I don't... The struggle is real. <laughs> <laughs> alhamdulillah alhamdulillah <laughs> but you you go through it because you you really you know once you want to tell that story it, it comes out at some point i think also it's about reading uh and i think back to mm. like the demand on education when we say girls uh girls need their right to education it means they read the right to access even if it wasn't the yeah. school they need to be able to read to have you know the imagination to dream. Yeah, yeah to broaden your horizons i mean you know, I grew up in a, in a city in Australia where there were no other Sudanese people. There was like one other Sudanese family. The next one didn't come till 10 years later. There were, you know, the idea of the pan-African community didn't exist where I was growing up. And the idea of having role models and people who looked like me or had the same values as me, it's just non-existent. But I found 
I found my, you know, my role models through books. I found inspiration through books. And this is amazing James Baldwin quote, which is like, you think you're the only one who's gone something and gone through an experience. And then you read and you realize that your experience is like, you know, has been written about in beautiful ways, hundreds of times, thousands, millions of times, and it somehow connects you to the sort of human experience. So I'm a, I'm a big, you know, I love reading. And it, it, thank you also for bringing it up because if you, the, the best writers are the ones who I think spend a lot of time reading as well because you learn how to tell stories or, you know, or even like listening to stories, you know, audio books or listening to your aunt, like the auntie who tells the best story in the house. You know, how does she put a story together? How is she making you excited? You know, think about these things um, and, and keep practicing them. Yeah. So we can't have a, a writer on the podcast without asking recommendations for books. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. Okay. Um, so in terms of like novels, I if you haven't read, I am a big fan, a current big fan of Abdurazak Gurna, who is this um, Tanzanian author who recently won the Nobel Prize. Like he's the Nobel laureate last year, 2021. And his sort of the, the post-colonial kind of fantastic novels quite often set in Tanzania or similar and I just it's just not something that you get to read about a lot in English so I so a big recommendation one of his books is called Afterlives um, and Paradise is also a really good one um, the book that I'm reading at the moment it's different it's not pan-African but it's um it's a fantasy young adult fiction novel called Legend Born. So if you want something very different, it's actually written from the perspective, the main character is a descendant of enslaved people and her magical power kind of comes from, you know, her ancestors and so on. So it's a very different kind of way of looking at a connection with ancestral grief and so on. So I think that was, that was really, really good. And one last one, uh, which, I might get some stick for, but if you haven't read, it's called Modern Muslims. Um, and it's actually written by this American guy. And I almost never read books by white people um, based in Africa, but he lived with Mahmoud Muhammad Taha in Sudan for like 20, 25 years. And he kind of writes about the rise and fall of um, that, you know, his movement um, and became quite good friends with a lot of those people. And so there's just very few kind of records of Mahmoud Muhammad Taha and his kind of approach to Islam and so on in English. So that's that's when I would recommend. So you're reading it to get the insight into <laughs> your, your <laughs> smart, smart, smart. <laughs> All right, my final uh, question to you is, are you Nala? I am Nala because I believe in a world where women are safe and free and equal. And I want to be part of creating the gender just world, inshallah. You are, you're already doing it. <laughs> and you're only in your 30s. Hey. <laughs> Did you Likewise, actually turn 30? Did you actually turn 30? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You did. <laughs> Look, yeah. you're so worried. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm and 31 my, this year. I'm 31 in, this year. In my head, you're always at, you know, 26, I'm like 21. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. If only, if only. No, my knees are telling me I'm in my 30s. <laughs> I love life, by the way. You know, people think that powerful women who are accomplished and mm. achieving and traveling the world do not have any relationships. <laughs> mm, 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 mm. 
No, as as you may be aware, I did get married just before the COVID pandemic hit. And then we had, you know, we went straight into lockdown. Allah was like, Yasmin, you want to be with this man? Well, you will be with him for all of the hours of the day. <laughs> but alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Um, the best thing about my uh, not so new husband is that he gets on really well with my family, which is a big plus because they send him the WhatsApp messages now. He's in all the WhatsApp groups and I don't have to deal with the WhatsApps. You know, and he likes to cook. So big win. <laughs> I need I need someone like that. Alhamdulillah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well come through to London. We'll uh we'll we'll, we'll introduce you to some people, inshallah. Yeah. Or I can send whoever <laughs> I like to your guy to, to teach him how oh, to Oh yeah. No, actually, you know, he has actually um been the wali. Like he's had a few chats with, you know, people who've been like, Oh, I want to get married to this guy. Can you suss him out? So we, you know, we can do the we can do the interview process. You've been, you've mm-hmm. been matching people. That's a new skill. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now it would become a reality show of the writer who is, you know, oh my God. spreading love. That would be really that that would be that would be great. That would be really, really good. <laughs> yes, I mean, this has been amazing. Thank you for taking the time Thank to you. share with us a little bit of your story because, you know, we can unpack all of that in just 30 minutes, but you're doing amazing and you're inspiring. And I wish you all the best in this tour of the book and we look forward to your next book. Thank you for being Inshallah. on I Am Nala podcast. And if you all want to check out more information on what Yasmin is doing, you'll find all the description on nalafam.org slash podcast. And I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs> Bye. Bye.